The moments when the United Kingdom has come together to applaud its care and essential workers will be remembered as an expression of our national spirit. From the very beginning of this crisis, I followed the advice of our world-leading scientists to defeat coronavirus by taking the right measures at the right time. Together we are tackling this disease, and I want to reassure you that if we remain united and resolute, then we will overcome it. I think it's absolutely fantastic sum of money. We never imagined that sort of money. It, it's just, a, it's, just a, it, it's, it's unbelievable that people would be so kind to give that sort of money to the National Health Service. And maybe I, I was responsible for starting it, but not, not deliberately. It was purely as, in gratitude for what they've done for me. Our NHS, like any world-class health service, has only limited numbers of doctors, nurses and specialist equipment. As long as people go on contributing, I'll go on walking. As long as they contribute, I'll walk. Or we'll see who finishes, who, who gives up first. Stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. This is The Lockdown with Phil Reynolds. Welcome along to episode three of The Lockdown. I'm talking to Caitlin Taylor, who is the wife of Omar, who is the only person in the UK to thankfully come off a ventilator and survive through the current COVID-19 pandemic. Not only did Omar survive coronavirus, he survived having sepsis, pneumonia, heart failure and a double stroke. All of that is very hard to comprehend. So I thought it important to learn about this from the eyes of his wife, Caitlin, who tells her story of being told by doctors that not only would Omar not be able to walk again if he did survive, but the chances of him surviving are very, very slim. Caitlin took the time to tell me all about her story and how Omar is now at home with their two children, Vivian and Harrison, and how she's so thankful to the NHS for everything that they've done for Omar and her family. She mentions in the interview that they have set up a GoFundMe page for Omar, and that GoFundMe page can be found at gofundme.com forward slash Omar's COVID-19 battle. I thought it was adorable that Omar and Caitlin's four-year-old daughter decided to hijack the chat that we were having at the very end. So that's left in for good measure. It was so lovely to speak to Caitlin. And here's her story in her own words. You're listening to The Lockdown with Phil Reynolds. Well, it happened around the 11th of March. He said he was had a bit of a cough and he had a really high temperature and I kept saying, oh, come on, get a grip. And then a couple of days later on the 13th was his birthday and we were planning to go to dinner anyway with um, his friends. And then we met loads of people out for drinks and this was all before the lockdown happened. And I said to him the whole day, you know, I was at university all day and I said, look, we don't have to go. Um, we can, you know, stay at home. And he said, no, 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 it's fine. He's taking, I took loads of paracetamol and I feel fine. So we went to dinner, he had a few gin and tonics and he thought, right, I feel fine. And then he is, his mom lives in Egypt. So she has a, an empty house here. 
uh, about 10 minutes away from us. So I said, look, it's your birthday. We have two small children. I said, you go stay at your mom's house because she has an empty house and I'll go home to the kids early and you stay out, whatever. So the next, he stayed at his mom's house. Uh, the next morning I had a birthday party to go to with the kids and I was meant to drop off the baby with him so I could take our daughter to the birthday party. And when I showed up, he was like really out of sorts. And I was like, oh, you're hungover. I was like, get a grip. You're hungover. Cause he has the worst hangovers. And I said, all right, that's it. You're hungover. And he said, no, like I actually feel like I'm dying. And I was like, right. Okay. So I took, I left the baby with him and took my daughter to a birthday party. And then I had to work at two. And when I went to go drop off my daughter to him um, and take them home, he was like, you have to call into work. I can't, I can't have the kids. And I was like, right, this is ridiculous. Um, you know, you're hungover, you have the man flu, get a grip. And then later on, so I ended, I ended up calling into sick, calling in work sick. And then he came, he never came home. So later on that night, they call his dad called an ambulance, um, from his house and to go to Omar and they took him in to the hospital and cause I turned off my phone. I was so annoyed with him and his dad called my house phone and said, you know, Omar's on his way to the hospital. I was like, for what? <laughs> and then, so then he went to the hospital and then they sent him home like early hours in the morning and said like, you know, it looks like you have a chest infection, um, go home, self-isolate. Cause this was like at the beginning of the coronavirus when we didn't really know much about it. And they said, go home, self-isolate, you know, away from your wife and kids. Um, so he did that. So for the next five days, every day he was in bed. He literally could not get out of bed, couldn't walk down the stairs, couldn't eat anything, nothing. And I, the whole week I was like, right, are you feeling better now? Like I still didn't really take him seriously. And then on the Friday night, uh, which was the 19th or 20th or something, I don't even remember, um, an ambulance, his brother went to go see if he was okay. And he was like unresponsive. He was just really bad. So his brother called an ambulance and they rushed him to the hospital. His oxygen levels were really low and he, he couldn't even move without oxygen. So they took him into the hospital. They put him in on an isolation ward and he spent three or four days there. And every day, every day I talked to him like on FaceTime because he was still able to talk to us and he was on like a different oxygen mask and you could tell by the different colors and he was just going up and up and Finally, he was on like 85% oxygen and I just thought, wow, this is the most they can give on a normal ward. So they called me and said, we're planning on transferring him to the ICU. And at this point, they had tested him already for the coronavirus, but the test wasn't back yet. And then they transferred him up to the ICU and like on the second day, they got the test results back that he was positive and he was really struggling to breathe. You know, they were trying everything they could. And then eventually they called me a five forty four forty five in the morning on a Sunday morning and said, um, I'm really sorry, but we've had to intubate Omar and put him on a ventilator. And, you know, he's, he's, we have him on his front right now. Cause there, they were, that was showing that that was helping these patients. Um, and they said, he's very critically ill. He's far from stable. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, he's never going to wake up from this ever. Like this is it. And then for the next 11 days, there was no improvements. They were talking about transferring him to a like Papworth hospital in um, Cambridge, which is a heart and lung specialist because 
he they did an echocardiogram on his heart and he had right-sided heart failure so there was no blood being filtered into his lungs from the right side of his heart and then before he went into the ICU they already knew he had a double pneumonia and he was starting to show signs of sepsis and then they found this in his heart so they wanted to transfer him up to Cambridge but the problem was that he was too critical to transfer so they tried to stabilize him for the next few days and then um then they started about he started improving on like the 11th day like he wasn't requiring much interventions for with his blood pressure he was on so much medication for it to keep his blood pressure up and they started weaning him off of that and he sh was showing good signs of that and then they started weaning his oxygen levels down and then they called me and they put in a tracheostomy in his um throat so he could breathe through that so they took it they ex extubated him and they put a tracheostomy in and he was still on the ventilator for about five more days. And then they started every, they started with four hours a day throughout the day, they'd get him off the ventilator and then it was eight hours and then 12 and they just did increments four hours every day. And then finally he was able to stay off the ventilator and they said they kept him in the ICU for a few more days. And then they said they'll, and then he, when he started waking up, he started, you can, they were realizing he was pulling all of his tubes with his left arm and he was kicking out with his left arm, but there was no movement on the right side. So they took him down for a CT scan and he had suffered a double blood clot in his brain, one on each side of the brain. So he had a double stroke. So they didn't really know, you know, what could they, they needed to wake him up, but they were taking the sedation off and he was just getting more aggressive because he didn't know where he was. So they had to put it back on. So it took a few days for them to get the sedation off. And then when they did, um, they, you know, the stroke team came up and saw him and, you know, and told us that he'd had a double stroke. And um, then we used to FaceTime him every day and he just used to stare right through us. And we used to think, oh gosh, like he's never coming out of this. And then a few days later, he started realizing he was still in the hospital and he was still in ICU. It was, this was day like 29 28 29 in ICU and then they said he's not needing critical care right now so we're thinking about transferring him to a stroke unit so they transferred him down to the stroke unit and um, they said he will need extensive rehabilitation for probably next six months so they looked at they found a hospital in Norwich that was accepting patients um, for a rehabilitation hospital and they found, so they were going to send him there for six months to start with. Um, but he, I think he realized that he was going there. So he, like, he was, he started walking because he was being in a full body hoist. He started walking. Um, he finally got his feeding tube out and he was able to slowly progress onto eating food. And then he said, like, he didn't want to go to the hospital. He wanted to come home. And they said that he'd probably benefit more from being at home getting rehabilitation in the house than he would if he went to the hospital. So then he came home three weeks after that and now he's home and the, we have speech and language and occupational and physical therapy every day. Because of what he has suffered, which you've went into in great detail, it has left him with the inability to speak and communicate at the minute. Yeah, he can't. He's, we're working on this, this week, we're working on three word sentences. So like, how are you, cup of coffee, things like that. But he can say, like, he forgets the cognitions there. He can read a whole news article, but he can't spell. And 
he can't say what he wants to say. Um, he struggles to find words. Like for instance, I point to a, I describe what a chair, a chair has four legs. You sit on it. And then he tries to think of the word and he can't, he knows what it is, but he can't say it. So, um, that's, that's it now. Now that he's home, which I'm sure you're over the moon with, does he have an understanding of who you are and who his children are and, and what has happened to him? Um, he understands who we are, definitely. He, he never, the cognition is there. He knows everything. Um, it's just, he doesn't know, he doesn't realize how sick he was. He didn't realize, you know, he was in, in a medically induced coma for so long. Um, he didn't, you know, he didn't realize. I've shown pictures from when he was really sick and he, it doesn't even look like him now. But he just can't believe that that's him. You were told by doctors that he would probably never walk again. How did you take that in? Well, first they told us he wasn't going to make it. So we kind of had that in our heads. And then when we said, right, he'll never walk again, then we, I was thinking, well, it's better than him not being with us. So, you know, if he's not walking or whatever, at least he's still with us. So that's what I, then I started accepting that. And now, you know, I'm accepting the fact that he may never speak normally again. They've set him up on a 12-week um, therapy program, and that's all the NHS offers. So after that, we have to go privately, and they think it's probably going to take up to a year. He's the first patient to successfully come off a ventilator. From that, it looks like Omar is a very strong human being. They used to call him their their um, star patient. They, you know, because when, when they put him out um, and intubated him, I was saying to them, how many people, I was saying to the doctors, how many patients have you successfully got off the ventilator? And they said, none. Like nobody's made it this far. And if, if they had, Omar's been the patient who's made it the farthest. Um, and then his next door neighbor in the ITU, they were like neck and neck at the end, but he obviously, his neighbor didn't suffer a stroke or anything. So he was able to go home after Omar to home, whereas Omar got discharged to a ward. So yeah, he is very strong, really strong, and he's very determined. <laughs> after being told that he may not survive, then when he did, he was then told that he may not walk again, but he walked out of the hospital. What was that feeling like? Well, I, I honestly thought they were going to bring him out in a wheelchair, and then when he walked around the corner, I couldn't believe it, and I just thought he was really wobbly and his legs looked bit jelly but he I can't believe he walked out of the hospital and you know his mom always his mom said to me Caitlin he's gonna walk out of that hospital and I was saying I don't think he is I don't think he's going to but he did you've given medical experts permission to study Omar's case in the hope that it'll help others recover from coronavirus do you think this shows just how much of a strong human being he actually is yeah, so before I left the hospital, um, I was on FaceTime to him, and there were three doctors who came into his room um, and introduced themselves, and they they said, we haven't worked with you. We, we haven't been your doctors taking care of you, but we're research doctors at this hospital or at the trust, and they wanted Omar's consent to do put him through a research study. They said, you know, we won't use your name, blah, 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 but we'll use all your symptoms, your age, everything. And they said, we really think we can help other doctors and healthcare professionals around the world with studying people like you. What about your children? Because they are very young. What's their understanding of everything that's going on? Uh, my daughter, she kind of, at the beginning, we were saying, you know, explaining to the lockdown, you know, there's a virus and it's killing people. And then when she found out she had that her daddy had the virus, she thought he was going to die. And 
she used to say, do, do you remember when daddy used to live here? And I used to think, oh my gosh. Um, but the baby never really understood. And he, he's now only just warming up to Omar in the last few days. He was really quite scared of him. From my understanding of, of Omar, he's a very loving human being. And for his little baby to be frightened of him, it must have been very, very difficult for you to comprehend. Yeah, it was. And obviously, because Omar can't really speak, um, it's even more difficult. I mean, the kids know that something's not right. So they have been really good and understanding, but it's just really sad. I've, my heart breaks for Omar um, because it's like I'm out watching it and it's, it's quite sad. And how is he today? He's really good. We went for quite a long walk, actually, today. So uh, my daughter rode her bike and we had the baby in the pushchair, but we went for a long walk, but he's been sleeping since. So he's really tired, but he's doing really well. We had speech and language and physical therapy this morning. What was it like in the hospital when he was first admitted and then it got more serious? If you could paint the picture to what was going on around you, how would you describe it? Apart from, I would imagine, a horror movie? Definitely a horror movie. I mean, when Omar first went into the hospital, I was able to FaceTime him and all of that. And then when he was on the ward and then when he went to intensive care, we there, you know, there were days we didn't go without seeing him. And then every time the nurses would call, all the alarms were going off and you just heard all the ventilators, you know, the noises of all the ventilators. And it was really scary. Like it sounds, it sounded chaotic, but the nurses were so calm and, you know, they still had all their masks on and everything. And it was, they were so clear in what they were saying, but in the background you could hear, it sounded like a war. He was given a hero's welcome when, when he came home from all of your neighbours. What, what did that feel like? Did he have a little cheeky smile on his face thinking he was a bit of a hero? Yeah, he was really overwhelmed and I felt really bad because I, I just thought this would be like the most, the nicest thing for, to welcome him home. Um, but still at this point, he didn't realise like he was really sick. Um, so it was really nice when we drove down the street and all the neighbours, like people we didn't even know or we don't even know. They're just... We're such an incredible village. Are you going to be seen as his carer as well as his wife? I am, but obviously I'm a full-time student as well. So there's so many rules with this carer taking care of. But yeah, I'm going to be his full-time carer and I'm at university full-time. I can't imagine what this is going to be like for you having to care for Omar and try to study full-time at university as well. But to add on to that, you have two young children, Vivian, who's four, and Harrison, who's almost two. Have they started to ask you any questions yet as to why daddy just isn't himself? Yeah, sometimes my daughter, at the beginning, she was saying, Mom, why can't daddy speak? And, um, you know, why can't he speak? But uh, now, like, she knows, like, I've explained to him, like, daddy had a bleed in his brain his brain was bleeding and that's why it, he can't talk because of that and I've been trying to explain it to her because she's quite intelligent so I've been trying to explain to it to her so she, that she knows that there is something wrong. Has it changed your outlook because the pandemic is sadly still ongoing are you taking more precautions now for yourself and your yes. immediate family? Yes I'm like so protective of Omar now like it's it's really, and I said to him, like, I don't care if this lockdown ends, like, we, you are not going anywhere. <laughs> I mean, if, our friends and family set up a GoFundMe page, and it's been so incredible because, you know, we've been able to buy Omar equipment from that. <clears throat> 
and, you know, just support ourselves because obviously we're not going to be working for the foreseeable future. So what would you say to the NHS and the staff that looked after Omar? Um, I'm so grateful for them and I can't wait to meet each and every one of them. Um, and I can't wait to give them all a big hug and kiss and say thank you. Who is that? I can't wait. Who is it? Mommy? Who is it? Who is it? 